Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, George Kalin. He's a, a principal investigator at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's part of the uh, Department of Translational Molecular Pathology in the Division of uh, Pathology and Lab Medicine. And we're going to talk about uh, certain kinds of RNA that uh, have implications for cancer. So, George, thanks for coming. So, thank you very much, uh... Richard, for, uh, for your invitation. All the time it's uh, wonderful to talk about uh, uh, what you love uh, among the most in the life. And I love uh, to do science and to make discoveries. And uh, I have fun because I am working with a new type of genes. Genes who do not codify the proteins, how is a dogma of molecular biology, but genes who produce non-coding transcripts, who regulates protein uh, expression. And, uh, really? Oh, so, okay, so there are genes that code for what? Certain RNAs that do not participate in translation to proteins, but, but they regulate how proteins are made? Exactly. So the name is non-coding RNAs, and these are very many. Human coding genes, the one who codify for proteins, are, uh, let's say, 20,000, something around uh, this number. You take uh, into consideration alternative splicing proteins, you have a little more, but around 20,000. Non-coding RNAs who came in different flavors, 
very small like microRNAs, what was our initial discovery with Carlo Croce in uh, leukemia, are 20 nucleotides in length. Others, so-called long non-coding RNAs, are tens of thousands of nucleotides in length. So oh, zero wow. non-coding are at least 100,000, if not 1 million transcripts. So one or two orders of magnitude more as coding genes. What is the beauty of the field is that uh, these days, these months, these years, we are learning the rules of organization and working of these non-coding RNAs. Being so many, there are enough for tens of years of research for thousands and thousands of scientists. You have to know that non-coding RNA field is extremely competitive. Only last year, about micro-RNAs, short 20 nucleotides, non-coding RNA, were published about 10 or 12,000 papers. Long non-coding RNA field, who start a little later, let's say 2005-2010, while microRNA field start in 1993 with a couple of papers telling that microRNAs are important in worms, and you know how it's the mind of human being, including scientists, who care about worms? We care because microRNAs are present not only in worms, also in humans, and this was after year 2000. So uh, coming back, long non-coding RNA field started in 2005-2010 has already 5-10,000 papers uh, a year. So it's a huge competition because everything is new. And not only the translation from the bench to patient uh, bed, you no know, biomarkers, new therapeutics nowadays, as you and the listeners know very well, it's done in a few years. It's not anymore the 20-30 years between, you know, let's say, CTLA-4 discovery in 90s and checkpoint inhibitor therapeutics 2012. So what's the typical path of a coding RNA? What's the typical path of a non-coding one? I mean, from what I understand in the nucleus, that's where the transcription occurs, and then the RNAs leave the nucleus and go towards the ribosome. Is that right? And what, how does that compare to these non-coding ones? Where do they go? Basically, the non-coding and the coding are produced in the nucleus by the genome. Codings, it's produced by about 2% of the genome, the exons. 98% of the human genome, it's non-coding. It was considered before like the trash of the genome, dark matter. Nobody knows what is there. Other people were saying it's nothing important because it's not coding. This genome produce, as you very nicely said, transcripts. Some who codify proteins through ribosome in the cytoplasm, other who did not codify proteins, and they go still in the cytoplasm, where they regulate the activity of cytoplasmic proteins or are doing other jobs that I can tell if you are interested, or non-coding RNA stay also in the nucleus, they remain in the nucleus, where they take care, they combine, they interact, with nuclear proteins, they interact with other RNAs in the nucleus, and they interact with uh, DNA. So this is a characteristics of non-coding uh, world. It's extremely pervasive. It's non-coding RNA are doing everything, interact with any component in the cell. And important, important, non-coding RNAs are also the oldest hormones 
in the human body. Why they are the oldest? Maybe you are interested to, to, to find out. Because as you know very well through your podcasts, the initial world was an RNA world. So the initial genomes were RNA genomes. How we know this? We know because of the discoveries of Tom Czech and Sidney Altman of ribozymes, short RNAs, few hundred nucleotides, who can self-catalyze themselves, so cut themselves, without the need of proteins and DNA. So the initial genomes were RNAs. So how can the genomes communicate each other if there are no proteins, there are no DNAs? Through short messengers who are the same RNAs. And in fact, microRNAs are very short messengers who communicate through exosomes, through extracellular vesicles between one cell to another cell. And they are doing- You mean they're, they're packaged as the cargo of extracellular vesicles, right? Exactly, they are packaged in this cargo. This is why these non-coding RNAs are so stable when you freeze the plasma, you know, and you can do studies after one, two decades after freezing the plasma because they are packed. They are very well protected by this uh, exosome. The nucleases cannot go eat them. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you is there must be compounds that break down and recycle the RNA are those compounds both inside and outside the nucleus near the ribosome and the cytoplasm? And how do they affect the different kinds of RNA? How fast do they break them down? Yeah, so ribosomes uh, uh, don't have uh, dogmatically too much to do with long non-coding RNAs or with non-coding RNAs because these RNAs are not codifying proteins. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So uh, non-coding RNAs are basically uh, protecting by uh, uh, through, through the attack by being uh, located, being inter interacting with proteins who keep them safe inside the inside the cytoplasm or outside the cytoplasm in, in the extracellular medium where not only they are located into the extracellular vesicles but they can bind to uh, proteins they can they can uh, stay uh, uh, compacted and uh, uh, protected by lipids so the so nature found a lot of very interesting ways to protect these RNAs because they are very important for cell-to-cell -cell communication. Now, uh, remember what I was saying, that ribosome had nothing to do with non-coding RNAs dogmatically also. In the last five, six years, the people start finding so-called short peptides, so very little peptides. A protein has usually hundreds of amino acids. Short peptides are at the level of tens of amino acids. 
it was found by specific technologies, ribosomal profiling and so on, that several long non-coding RNAs, in fact, are translated in very short peptides. So this makes very nice and very interesting this work because it means there are non-coding RNAs with double phase. One phase is a non-coding, what we learned in the last 10, 20 years, and the other phase are these very short peptides that the people didn't study too much because proteomics, it's not well equipped now to identify extremely small peptides. So what, again, what's the typical fate various RNA? You know why I ask? I mean, some of these new vaccines are mRNA and how persistent will it be, do you think, if it's sitting in the cytoplasm of a cell or will it be you know, broken down pretty quickly? Like how many yeah. transcription cycles do you think they will undergo based on your understanding of their structure? Yes, uh, the half time of non-coding RNAs, it's, uh, it's uh, very diverse. It is from, let's say, a uh, few minutes till, uh, let's say, uh, sometimes it can stay uh, several days. Uh, basically, when we do therapeutics with non-coding RNAs, these are injected uh, in the mouse model usually twice a week because the effect is persistent through targeting so many so many components in the cytoplasm and in the in the body of uh, of the experimental animals that two injections a week uh, it's enough because doesn't matter only how much how long the RNA messenger RNA or non messenger RNA vaccine or not vaccines uh, survive in the cytoplasm important is that this is a domino effect these RNAs are targeting downstream proteins, other RNAs, lipids, and they start a downstream domino effect who can last for a long time. You say about vaccines, mRNA vaccines, stimulate immune cells, and this immunity, we hope, can, can stay very long. So there are two aspects. One, the peculiar time life of the RNA, and the second, how long the effect persists. They persist days, probably uh, weeks, probably months. Here I speak about micronase and non-coding RNAs. Well, I would guess that, um, and I'll, I'll take it back to your research. I just, again, had a question. It's probably proprietary what the mRNA components are of the vaccines. So does anyone know how long they're supposed to stay, or is that not revealed? Like, have you been able to see the structure of them because you're in this field? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, on this, uh, on this mRNA vaccines, uh, there are studies that are done now. So nobody can give you a certain, uh, a certain uh, answer. Uh, what, we, what we know, we know that uh, this uh, mRNA vaccines, it's a paper who just uh, come out uh, uh, today in Nature, this mRNA vaccine and the protection to, to this SARS-CoV-2 it's, take, it, it's keeping uh, for several months and different mutations in the RNA virus uh, can uh, avoid uh, the protection because here it's a trick of these RNAs that I work with and a lot of people are working with, uh, uh, very many. It's the fact that RNA is very mutagenic. RNA, the RNA molecule is not so stable as DNA to mutations. So uh, you put under pressure an RNA molecule, it starts to get uh, mutations. Furthermore, like anything in life, RNA has a structure. 
the structure of RNAs, longer the RNAs there are, the structure is uh, more difficult to predict and it's more changing quite in each second. It's if you want a flip flop uh, type of structure. So it's very difficult for this RNA to predict perfectly what are the binding sites with what proteins they are binding, with what RNAs they are binding and so on. So RNA, it's a very uh, interesting molecule, but it's also a very dangerous molecule because it's not very stable. And in fact, we see this uh, months, uh, you know, we have a good argument how unstable they are. There are all these mutations with RNA virus, uh, viruses that occurs. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what are you studying in particular about these long non-coding RNAs? You said there are tens of thousands of base pairs. It's pretty big. Like what, what is their, where do they typically go and how long do they stay in the cells? So basically, uh, on, uh, let, let, let's tell you why we are interested in and what we are doing with this so-called non-coding RNAs. Because as I said before, there are two types, two flavors, very short and uh, long non-coding RNAs. What we are doing uh, at MD Anderson and what are doing the, uh, a lot of colleagues all over the world, there are two types of work. First is the fundamental uh, uh, research cloning and identification of new type of uh, non-coding RNAs. As I, as I said, there are millions uh, codified by the genome. And what are the functions? And the functions are extremely, extremely pervasive. And of course, other question like you nicely said, what is the half-life, uh, how they get out from the cells, how they get inside the cells. The second very, very important, uh, very important aspect of research is the translationalist. So how we can apply this knowledge and how we can apply the non-coding RNA uh, research for the patient, not only cancer. MD Anderson Cancer Center, it's working on cancer, but we are speaking here about any type of disorders because non-coding RNAs are important for any type of, uh, of uh, abnormality. So the identification of biomarkers, can we use this non-coding RNA short or long? in body fluids or in the cells of, uh, of different tissue in order to predict how bad is the disease, how aggressive is the disease, what is the overall survival of the patient, how long this patient will survive from the time of diagnosis and before any type of therapeutics is started. Why this is an essential question? Because not only in cancer, but in most diseases, Clinicians, believe or not, do not have very clear understanding why a patient with a specific type of cancer, a specific localization, a specific stage, a certain age and gender behave very differently from another patient from the same race, same type of cancer, same type of stage, same, disease, same age, same gender. And one is surviving, let's say, one month, another is surviving three years. These predictor markers are in terrible need. In this way, the clinicians will know what are the patients to put from the first side to very aggressive therapeutics. And because I said the word therapeutics, the second translational opportunity for this non-coding RNA field is to develop therapeutics using non-coding RNAs and against non-coding RNAs. And in fact, there are several uh, examples of, uh, 
of therapeutics related to non-coding RNA, small interfering RNA, antisense RNA, RNA mimetics, and so on. All right. So, George, where do these non-coding RNAs tend to show up? Are they they prevalent in blood? And when you analyze blood, do you burst open the extracellular vesicles and that's where they they come from? Or where do they find them if you do... uh, if you look, use them as a biomarker, where, do they, where are they highly prevalent? So, um, very, very good question. So, uh, they are present everywhere in the body and everywhere in the body fluids. Of course, blood, uh, on the concept of liquid bios, you know, basically you do not want to access the site of the disease because ac- accessing the site of the disease, you can do also harm to the patient. But you want to identify what's happening in the tumor or at the site of the disease by having access to the blood. Why? Because the tumor in case of cancer or other inflammation uh, tissues, tissues with inflammation release a lot of products, not only RNAs, proteins, uh, ions, uh, hormones, so on in the blood. So this concept of liquid biopsy is extremely powerful. So most of the research is done to identify biomarker in blood, including biomarkers from the spectrum of non-coding RNA, short or long. But you can do it also in other body fluids, for example, in urine, or you can do it in uh, gastric juice, or you can do it in uh, cerebrospinal fluid. And in the case of leukemias, no blood uh, cancers, you can access the blood you and take the uh, malignant cells, for example, BCLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, it's the most frequent type of leukemia in the Western world, but quite rare in the Asian world. And we can discuss about some uh, ideas why. And uh, the patient with CLL have up to 95% in the blood, the malignant cells. So basically, if you put a needle in the blood, and you take this blood, 95 of, uh, of white blood cells are malignant B cells. So you can use these uh, B cells as a wonderful uh, territory for biomarker identification, for delivery of drugs, and so on. So what's, uh, what non-coding RNAs are particular to cancers or in higher abundance? What's their function? So I would say uh, in cancer, being such a complex disease, you find any type of proteins, any type of non-coding RNAs. Now, uh, cancer has, uh, as you as you say, as you know, two type of uh, of genes. Doesn't matter they are coding or non-coding. Oncogenes, the one when high, uh, induced or stimulates cancer, and tumor suppressors, the one when lost, when blocked they induce cancer or uh, stimulate cancer. Why is I am saying induce and stimulating? Because there are two different types of of action uh, in cancer. One is the initiation. Without that event, the cancer cannot occur. And we have very good examples. Uh, Probably in one of your podcasts, someone talked about adenomatous polyposis coli, a very important protein coding gene that when mutated, uh, the, 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 the humans get uh, colon cancer. Now, the second type of, uh, of events are the one who occur during the progression of cancer and push the malignant cell in order to be very bad and to disseminate in the body. Because the way by which most patients with cancer unfortunately die also in 2020 
it's through metastasis. So we know microRNAs or long non-coding RNAs who are important for the initiation. For example, I was working with my uh, my uh, mentors, the famous Carlo Croce, the one who discovered BCL2 and the role of translocation in cancer, and we identified in 2002 that in this chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which again, most frequent leukemia in the Western world, there are two microRNAs, named 15 and 16, who are lost from the human genome on chromosome 13. Believe me or not, uh, Richard, but for decades, the people were trying to find out what are the genes important for this deletion. They were looking all the time for coding genes. Why? Because the dogma and the only type of coding genes that the scientists and the world knew were coding genes in humans. Look, there were not coding genes, but they were very short non-coding RNAs who were located exactly in of deletion. What are doing this non-coding RNA, it's important. They are regulating the work of a very important gene. I told you, cloned by the same Carlo Croce in Tsujimoto, 1982, named BCL2. This is a very important gene who regulates the way in which the cells are dying. When you have these genes very high expressed, then the cells are not dying. It's an anti-apoptotic, anti-apoptotic protein. If near 15, 16 are deleted, are lost from the genome, they do not block this uh, anti-apoptotic protein. BCL2 is very high. The malignant cells are not dying. They are surviving in the blood of the patient and they induce this Leukemia, as I told before, 95% of the cells in the blood are these cells who reproduce very slowly, by, but they do not die. Why this occur? Because chromosome 13 is lost, two microRNAs, very short, 20 nucleotides, invisible genes are lost, BCL2 is very high. Is this important for the patients? Of course, very important. Why? Because these days, a very interesting therapeutics named Venetoclax. It's a small molecule to block BCL2, completely change the natural history of the patient with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Basically, up to 80% of the patient now are quite cured using this Venetoclax plus another uh, drug named Ibrutinib. So, Wait, wait, I, I need to break this down more simply. What is the mechanism of action of the drug? What is it specifically targeting? So is this, it getting very, very technical? Yeah, this drug, Venetoclax, it's targeting BCL2. So it's blocking the activity of BCL2 and it's inducing the cells to die. So why is the mechanism it's important? Because you lost the microRNA, the protein is going high. So there are very many molecules of BCL2, protein BCL2, to work. You put Venetoclax. But, but, are you doing this by creating something that acts like an interfering RNA? No, this Can is you... a small molecule. It's a small molecule, like, like the small molecules. But I give an example uh, for you to understand that the fact that understanding the role of microRNAs start to be extremely important for therapeutics because there are microRNAs who are initiator of the disease. They are the initial event who produce the cancer. If you target these pathways, initiator pathways, you are saving the life of the patient. 
how do you target? So with a small molecule, then you're down-regulating the production of these proteins. Again, you're essentially, what do you, what is a small molecule doing? Is it binding to these, uh, yeah. These RNAs that would normally transcribe or translate to become proteins? So in, in the case of anetoplasty, it's binding to the protein. Mm. Another approach that you anticipated with your question and an approach in which we are working very much uh, at MD Anderson and others are working uh, in other places in the world is to create small molecules who are binding to RNAs. In our case, are binding to microRNAs precursors in order to block their activity. In 80s, 90s, a lot of people were looking to use uh, small molecules who were, were blocking viral RNAs. Now we are looking to create small molecules who are blocking by binding, by, by uh, hugging the RNA at the special places with special structures in order to, to block the activity of the RNAs. These are small RNAs binding uh, microRNAs. The name is SMIRS. SMIRs. We are working actively also in this field. How do uh, interfering RNAs work? So interfering RNAs are working in a way which is similar with microRNAs. They are by complementarity targeting the messenger RNAs. SRNAs have to target 100% each nucleotide for their length of about 20 nucleotides. So you design them in the laboratory usually. There are examples of endogenous, let's say natural sRNAs, but these are very less studied. MicroRNAs are working in a more tricky way. They work by complementarity binding the target, but imperfect complementarity. So you don't need all uh, 20, 21 nucleotides of a microRNA to have pairing with the target. Why is this different? It's important because sRNAs are working one sRNA against one specific target. The people who design sRNA and the people who use sRNA in the clinic are very aware and afraid of so-called off-target effects. Some sRNA, short interfering RNAs, instead of binding only the messenger RNA of interest, are binding also other messenger RNAs and produce adverse reactions. For a microRNA, who again, do not have to bind 100 perfect complementarity with a messenger RNA, the meaning is one microRNA can target 100, if not 1,000 of messenger RNAs. Can you append anything onto an RNA, add on a triplet, you know, a codon or anything? Has anyone been able to do that? There are some people who are modifying the microRNAs at the extremities in order to get better insight to the cells. You can add lipid, you can add different modifications, uh, different modification in order to get inside the cells more specifically or at a higher rate. Yes, there are this type of modification. Usually this uh, uh, small RNA therapeutics, it's using uh, uh, modification at the extremities in order to, to work uh, to work very well. And also another point that it's important uh, to be to be known is the fact that these very small RNAs, the scientists uh, identified year ago that they are working, as I said, they are 
targeting messenger RNAs and they block the protein expression. So otherwise, a microRNA, it's well known to be a blocker of a protein activity. I give you an example, microRNA-1516, it's blocking BCL2 uh, protein. So basically it's keeping in, uh, in control the amount of molecules of BCL2 protein. Nowadays, the scientists identified a lot of so-called, let's say, uh, non-classical, non-canonical uh, roles for microRNA. One of these non-canonical roles is the binding, direct binding to toll-like receptors, which are very important uh, proteins located at the endosomal level, some of them. So inside the cell are very important for immune-regulated function. They recognize a lot of um, a lot of molecules who come from the surrounding medium. So microRNAs can do a lot of extraordinary jobs and this is also uh, why we are sticking to identify the role of microRNAs. Um, are there any particular ones that seem to be prevalent in all cancers or is each cancer so different that the you know the RNAs that show up are very different? Very good question. I think you were studying the microRNA field, no? It's very interesting uh, question, yeah. There are some microRNAs who are uh, abnormal in uh, most type of cancer, if not any. I give you an example, the mere name microRNA 21. And this is overexpressed, it's high expressed in any type of human cancers. There are some other examples of microRNAs who are uh, more cancer specific also usually they don't work uh, cancer specific the microRNAs have very pleiotropic effect very multiple effects so they can be abnormal in more than one type of cancer but one example again is this mir 1516 who when they are knocked down they induce CLL so a specific uh, blood type of cancer okay so what uh how long do you think before that uh, you know biomarkers are going to be able to be used for blood draws that specifically look at these different RNAs that'll be reliable? Are we close to being in the clinic, or is it still a way away? I have to tell you that already a long non-coding RNA named PC3, uh, it's already used uh, as a biomarker for uh, for uh, bladder renal cancer by analyzing the presence in the urine. So there are already uh, some. Uh, non-coding RNA used as a biomarker. On the other side, there are already some non-coding RNAs used for therapeutics. For example, uh, the knockdown blocking a microRNA named MIR-155. It's already in clinical trials in patients with uh, blood cancer because this is a microRNA important for different type of blood cancer. So certainly there are already examples for biomarkers and therapeutics uh, to be in clinical uh, practice. Of course, all of us working with non-coding RNA, we want more to be present uh, in clinical practice because you know, the goal of our research is first of all to save lives, to help the patient. Gotcha, okay. Well, very good. George, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, they can go uh, uh, in, in MD Anderson site uh, at... Uh, uh, the Department of Translation Molecular Pathology, but I think the best way to find uh, what uh, we are doing is to, it's to check uh, the literature. And of course, uh, uh, for the ones who are uh, 
connected to the medical uh, medical uh, field. I had over 150 fellows in this uh, 14 years in which I'm working independently in MD Anderson. So my fellows are uh, all over the world scattered because I think this is the most uh, uh, the activity that I am the most proud in my life. The fact that I have so many fellows, uh, so many mentees who are widespread in the knowledge about uh, non-coding RNAs because uh, science, it's a hobby. So science, you are not doing from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Science, it's 7 out of 7, 24 out of 24. And a discovery, you are not making it from Monday to Friday. Discoveries can come in your mind and can come in your activity in any any moment. And this is why scientists, I think, true scientists are happy people because you are doing your hobby of your life. And let's be fair, in the Western country at least, you are also well paid to do your hobby. So science, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful uh, work. And of course, for the one who will listen to this podcast, uh, please uh, push your children, push your teenagers, uh, friends to go towards science, because look how important was that in this world where, where very clever scientists who create this COVID vaccines in an absolutely astonishing uh, short period of time. Science is saving lives. And what is more beautiful is using your mind and using your creativity to save lives. So science, it's a hobby. Come in science and you will not, uh, you will not be tricked. Science, it's really good. Okay, well, very good. George, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. And uh, of course, Richard, thank you very much. It's, it's wonderful that you invite me. And uh, and if we can have, you know, if we can meet in person, uh, in person in the future, and have a nice uh, glass of wine and chat about science uh, uh, mm. here. So good luck with everything. You are doing a wonderful, uh, a wonderful job because speaking about thank science you. and about scientists, I think uh, you it's, it's changing, it's changing the world. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.